consolidando con millones y reinvirtiendo todo ese ahorro en rentabilidad para nuestros clientes. Esta es sin duda una de las claves para nuestro éxito. This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is my co-host, and he needs to come to daddy. It's Hank. That's true. I'm Hank, an explorer in the further regions of experience, a demon to some, an angel to others, and I will never call you daddy. That's fine. So, what is it? Was it a listener who suggested this show? It was. If only I'd written their name down. <laughs> Artist, poet, glassblower extraordinaire. You can follow them on Instagram at sunsquatch.co. And be sure to check out their official website, www.tjbellinger.com, for poetry and exceptional glass art today. That's T-J-B-E-L-A-N-G-E-R.com. Excellent. Yes, it was a listener that asked us if we had ever done a Hellraiser episode. And we did many, many years ago, like a decade ago, uh, like 2009, maybe 2010. But the Sunsquatch who you can find on Instagram, sunsquatch.co, asked us this question, and now here we are, we're, we're doing the Hellraiser episode. But there's, a, I guess, a trick to this Hellraiser episode, because if you're familiar with the series, there's a lot of them, and um, let's be blunt, they mostly all suck. They, they suck big old sloppy dick. It's not even fun, you know? It's, it's, that's even a bad reference, because big old sloppy dick sucking should be fun for everyone, and this is the opposition of it. They're big... That's the angel part. Yeah, that's the angel part. Hellraiser, let's say, four to where are we at now, 11? They're just turds. They're like dried-up white dog turds baking in the sun. It's awful. If you don't come over here and lick that white dog shit, I'm gonna plow into your nose with my fist. I am not licking any white dog shit. I'll lick the dog shit if you leave us alone. Dale, you're not licking dog shit, okay? Dude, they're kids. Really, it's just dog it's shit. It's ridiculous. Hello, how are you? Well, I mean, there's a TV show coming out now, which was my idea, God damn it! it there's, there's an episode, I don't remember which one that is, it's not recent, but earlier this year, you, you discussed the idea of your Hellraiser TV series, and it was pretty good. Well, I mean, it, it's something you can really expand upon and take to new places, and the way that 
you know, media is handled now. There's no point in making Hellraiser movies because they will make a cheap, shitty PG-13 or slightly rated R remake. And there's just no point. You might as well do it as a long form television show over Netflix or HBO or something. So you could really go off and take it as far as you need to take it. Because that's really what we're going to be talking about tonight is not so much Hellraiser as a series. We're not going to discuss individual, to me, like individual episodes of it and like what the plot of them was and all that stuff. What we're talking about is more of the general philosophy behind what Hellraiser is and what Clive Barker initially started the uh, novella as and the film as and what the overtones of what's really going on in the Hellraiser series and what it's all about. You've kind of got two Hellraisers. You've got Clive Barker's Hellraiser, uh, and you could also just go by the Hellbound Heart. Originally, that's his intent, was to call the movie the Hellbound Heart. And just to be clear, the book literally came out, and he wrote it on a fury to get it released with the movie. So these things kind of went hand in hand. There's this whole thing about uh, Pinhead appearing earlier in a play with Doug Bradley that Clive had directed, where it was something called The Dutchman, but really the first incarnation of the Cenobites, the villains, in Clive Barker's work translated later from Hellbound onward, it's just, and I, this is our opinion, it's just not right. And it doesn't focus on, I think, what is the most terrifying aspects of Clive Barker's work and Hellraiser, which is uh, primordial lust, emotion, the, the, the nastiness, not just nastiness, but the other side of human emotion. Joe Bob Briggs covered Hellbound on his show the, the last season, and he opened it with discussing how food is great, but when you eat too much, of course, you know, there's a problem here. You have gastrointestinal problems. Sex is great, but sex with 50 people might not be great, which I don't know. I beg to differ. I think that could be kind of fun unless they all had pens coming from their head and were shoving spikes in your asshole, which I don't know. There's some people that are really interested in that. People like Clive Barker. And that's why he wrote Hellraiser and why Hellraiser 4 has nothing to do with stuff being shoved up your butt in nightclubs in New York City in the late 70s. <laughs> It's an interesting way to put it, Hank. What Hellraiser extends from is, yes, it's very much about sadomasochism and like the emotions behind sadomasochic relationships and also just relationships in general. It doesn't have to be sadomasochistic, I guess. I guess that's how you pronounce it. Oh, son of a bitty, bitty, uh, son of a bitty, bitty, son of a bitty, 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 uh, gun. <laughs> you thought I was going to say uh, son of a bitch, didn't you? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because you really have to focus on the relationships that are available outside of the pain and death aspects in the very first movie. You've got Kirstie's relationship with her father, and then her father's relationship with his wife, and then his wife's relationship with his brother. There's a whole lot of going on. It's like a fucking episode of Dallas where everybody dies. Well, I mean, like, what I was getting ready to say was that this gets very blunt about sex and violence and how the two mix. But it's also very much about how just in general relationships and sexual relationships are all somewhat sadomasochistic. I have experience with this, as Hank can attest to the last couple of weeks, how um, relationships can be very much about like pain and reward, even if it's not like literally about physical pain. It can be emotional pain. It can be about supply and demand even of just taking... Um, 
taking your love away almost and putting that and the masochistic side of you wanting more of the the sadist side. It doesn't always specifically have to be about knives and blood and getting your like fucking dick stomped in. It can also be emotional sadomasochism. Sadomasochism. But in the case of Hellraiser, it does kind of involve getting your dick stomped on a little bit. Oh, yeah, because this is the extreme of it, because as it says, angels says some, demons for others. And that's where I've always connected with the Hellraiser series as a whole, because it's very up in the air, because it's, it is about, like, yes, some people, this is a good thing. This destruction through, like, sexualized violence that they're experiencing, that's why they would be the Cenobite characters or, you know, the things that are going on with the... The laminate configuration is how I've always uh, known it as, but it's what? What's the other term? Lamashard. Oh God! From from part four, the yeah, Lamashard, the merchant configuration. Yeah. I don't know. I enjoy the novelty of part four because everyone ret- gets to go to space. That's neat. Hellraiser in space. Yeah, sure. It's awesome if you smoke a couple bowls, but it's it's infinitely dog shit to the point that it's an Alan Smithy movie, and most of the mythos and lore from that to me are kind of like the comics. I I recognize it. It's there. I'm a fan. But I don't care, because if we were going to treat this as, like, the entire universe and dive into the comic book series, dude, it goes, they meet Nightbreed. There's a jihad against Nightbreed. Uh, they, they really focus on the identity of who Pinhead is, which isn't even its name or, or whatever. That's a whole... We'll get into that later. But it's an Aztec god named Zyptotec. There's just... There's a it, lot of shit. It's a, a lot of extra shit that I'm not interested in, because what was always interesting to me in Hellraiser, and I saw this when I was like, what, 10 years old? What? And even I understood these concepts at that age. I didn't really like understand them fully, but I kind of get an echo of what was going I on. I always felt it more religious than anything, because, I mean, the, the Cenobites, are, they're priests. I mean, that's what Pinhead is. He's a hell priest, and maybe not hell. I don't want to put an emphasis, because the first movie, it's not like they're a servant of anything. That they just have appeared, and like Clive Barker kind of likened them to prison guards of hell that would come and get escaped people, but that doesn't make a lot of sense because they don't even know Frank's gone until a quarter of the fucking movie is through, and then they don't even really trust Kirstie when it comes down to that. But just the entity of them, they are like the most holy practitioners of not just pain, but everything mixing, because most of the people that are attracted to the configuration are at not so much the end of their ropes figuratively, but they've gone through everything. That it's, that I mean, Jack Kurak would be the type of person that would have been interested in opening the box. The whole backstory that you do get film-wise in Hellbound of who the Hell Priest is, is, you know, Elliot Spencer, and that he was at the Battle of Flanders that was like a five-month-long battle, saw some of the most vicious casualties of World War II, and that pushed him psychologically to the end of his rope where he had no feeling, so... The most deviant behavior, the sex, drugs, whatever he could get into until he had nothing else to expose himself to led him to the box. So it's almost to me like that fanatical Catholicism where you see the the parades of people just flaying themselves and whipping themselves on the street because Christ suffered. People that nail and crucify themselves and hang on crosses for days and days and days. There's something beautiful about that. There's something very disturbingly beautiful about that fanaticism. And that's always how I saw the lead Cenobites. So yeah, I was, is more about relationship between pain and pleasure and the pleasure of pain. And it can be like, and also taking those concepts to the outer reaches of 
the concepts themselves. Because really, like to me, the Cenobites are just cosmonauts of the uh, of like taking it to the further reaches of experience and wanting to experience everything, whether that be negative or positive, and seeing the positive within that negative and getting the pleasure out of that negative. And that's a lot of like in the original Hellraiser, the Frank Cotton character is he's experienced almost everything in his life, every kind of drug, every kind of pleasure, every kind of type of sex. And he just he's got nothing left and he wants to experience the ultimate pleasure and the pleasure of basically dying and the the like the sexual experience that is dying. And that's what's been abandoned in a lot of the Hellraiser sequels, especially. Well, I, I want to interrupt you briefly because we just recently talked about Strangeland and there's something kind of connecting here with one of your favorite scenes. And one of mine, too, is when D Snyder's all hung up and he gets really mad at the guy. I was breaking through. You've got a lot of mythos and mythology in general behind not just dying, but transcendence with pain, whether it's emotional or physical, that almost it, it becomes a certain point of divinity, even kind of loosely translating a lot of Buddhist texts where monks would go into the lotus position and apparently, you know, live for 200 years as they self-mummified, which sitting in one position and allowing yourself to die is, is like almost transcendence through absolute pain. That's absolution through pain because you have such discipline. Uh, again, just picking another monk, you've got in the Vietnam War, the guy that self-emulated, didn't move. You can find video of that. Guy douses himself in gasoline, sits down in the lotus position and tortures himself, doesn't move. There's a weird beauty in this absolution through pain, and that really... When you dress down a lot of the S&M and the esoteric and the more leather-clad, bizarre concepts that Clive pushes into your face, I don't know, there's a lot of beauty to that mysticism. There's a lot of truth to it, because not everything hurts forever, I guess you could say. Well, that, that's one thing that fucked up the series at a certain point, was Pinhead became more of this, like, villain. He became vindictive. It was weird. I mean, because in part two, that makes sense. Part three, you kind of make sense, but in part four, he's like a James Bond villain. He wants world domination. Which is and not a, like to me, he's not a villain at all. He's, I mean, he has rules that he follows. The people that he takes to hell, whatever you want to call it, the people that experience the uh, the pleasure and the pain of hell are asking for it. They want it. They want to feel this. That's why they're angels. He's not like he's not purposely inflicting this on people who don't wanted who aren't trying to experience and experience this pain and towards the end it just became about inflicting violence and being some sort of like we're gonna bring hell to earth and it's like that's so beyond what this series is about it's so much about your inner struggles and trying to deal with what you want and the pain and pleasure that you were trying to control in yourself and not about, like, you know, some demonic bullshit, which is, uh, that's, I mean, it's kind of stupid at a certain point. Because at its core, Hellraiser is a story about almost perversity and your inner perversity and allowing that out and allowing it to consume you, all consume you, and possibly destroy you because the most pleasurable thing to you could be your own destruction. The first two films, I think, have a success because there are villains. There are oppositions. Frank is a villain. Dr. Chenard is a villain. In the third movie, Pinhead himself has become the villain somehow, I guess. You've got this focus on, it's the evil inside of people. That's the scary part. No, that's not scary. They got the fucking pins in his head that vacantly appears and takes souls back to hell to give them pleasure and pain. That was, that was frightening, but whatever. Stereo head guys. Got a bunch of CDs in his head. It's 1993. Lemmy's on the soundtrack. Neat. 
Part four, it's just vindictive and pointless. The villain has almost become the idea of the box. In the second movie, you're introduced to a lot of different concepts and that they're servants of hell. It's almost like when we have discussed numerous times Halloween, and what is really, really scary about it is crazy fucking a mask, don't know anything about him. Leatherface, crazy fucking a mask, don't know anything about him. In Hellraiser, what you are established is there's this box, and if you open it, these dudes come. That's it. Trying to almost stay vacant and away from, from deeper concepts, which is weird. Clive Barker's really good at incredibly deep concepts. But in the situation of what you're presented with with the Hellbound Heart and 1987's Hellraiser, the anonymity with who the Cenobites are is what really is driving and terrifying because you have to ask the ultimate question to yourself as a viewer, if, if confronted with the configuration, would you open the box? Would you be one of these, as you said, cosmonauts of, of pain and, and I mean, it's not just pain. It's everything. It's, it's pain and pleasure all wrapped into one because pain is pleasure and pleasure is pain, which in the long run is everything. And that's why like, it's like bizarre to me of where the series ended up going and a lot of other things, because the villains of the, the piece are just humans. It's us. We are the villains. We're our own worst enemies, and that's kind of the point. Frank is so greedy that he escapes from hell after experiencing literally everything. I mean, perhaps he could have been a formidable Cenobite, but at the same time, his thirst was never quenched, and that's kind of terrifying that he even turns on his love interest. He doesn't even have a high regard for Julia once you get to the climactic end of the very first Hellraiser movie. He is... I mean, and that's what I, okay, now now I've come to something in my mind I've never thought about before. That's what really is terrifying about Frank, because there is no absolution for him. Nothing ever is enough. He really is one of the scariest maniacal villains. He fucking escaped hell after feeling, and he admits to Julia that he did feel and conquested all the pain, that he has been to the nothing. He has felt every pleasure that man could ever feel, yet he decides to escape hell and return back to Earth. That raises so many questions as to what is he in this for outside of Frank's just fucking evil. He's pure evil. And Kirstie is... This doesn't make sense to me at all later in the series. I think Kirstie is the prime definition of, like, chaotic good. Because her first act is turning on somebody. But at the same time, it's her evil uncle that has come back from the dead and has no skin. So later in the series... Kirstie's confronted with a situation involving her husband and just immediately decides after going to fucking hell in the second movie, yeah, I'm just going to call these guys back like they're my friends, like they owe me a favor. Fuck. I don't know. I enjoy... I, what, what is the name of that one? That is Hellraiser Hellseeker with Dean Winters, Ryan O'Reilly, my man Ryan O'Reilly from Oz. Conceptually, it's it's a cool-looking movie. I like Dean Winters. This movie's dog shit, though. I'm, I'm dressing a turd. I do this all the time. I'll talk about something because I kind of like it because of actors, and in the long run, it's like, hey, it's a piece it's, of shit, it's hey? It's a terrible piece. Well, I mean, the, the series itself just went just into stupid obscurity because the core idea here is these ideas of pleasure and pain, and we completely lost that in these other films because it became about douchebags. just became about douchebags who wanted it all, and it was... Oh, all like a Twilight Zone episode, and I always knew what the endings were going to be for them. Hey, guess what? Pinhead comes out with the last 10 minutes and says, guess what's been going on? You've been in hell the entire time. No fucking shit. It was the last movie in the movie before that. That was the plot. But all of it's almost inconsequential because nothing is about pain, suffering, or the whole idea of 
the bitter end. Uh, I really like some of the concepts that you get in Hellbound of who Elliot Spencer is and what caused him to become so vacant and so jaded with life that he looked for the configuration, that he was willing to experience this. And you don't get like a, a whole Cenobite backstory with everyone else, but when they're exposed, the Chatterer is a child. Uh, just a lot of the whole imagery, I think, behind it. And of course, there's a, a massive backstory of Clive Barker's involvement, how the movie was originally going to be in 30 different scripts, and it was going to be this big, grand, wonderful sequel, and we get what we got. I think it's really, really cool, and I think it's a nice companion piece, but on its own, if you would watch Hellbound immediately after Hellraiser, the tone is gone, the feeling's gone, the sin, the, the dirtiness is gone. I feel uncomfortable throughout Hellraiser, especially there's a sequence once Frank has taken Larry's skin. Him and Julia have sex. And that sequence, I, every time I watch it, I feel almost disgusted because they're having this mad, passionate sex, but you know underneath it's like if you've ever worn a latex glove and it's gotten a little wet that feeling of just the pure annoyance, and that's all I can imagine with that scene, and it's so visceral, and that's just the greasy nature of Hellraiser. The second movie attempts to replicate it, and there's a, like the scene where the where Dr. Chenard gives the straight razor to the absolute crazy guy to try and bring Julia back. Yeah, that's great. Uh, there was supposed to be a castration. I think that might have even been a little bit more successful. Everyone involved disagrees because they feel it would have been the focal point of the movie, but it's... Unfortunately, a largely plotless movie. Uh, the evil guy gets exposed as an evil guy, and then there's people running around a maze for a long time, and then he becomes a worm dude, and everybody dies. Hellraiser 2, Hellbound. A review by Hank. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it at least it held up some of the, the concepts that were originally imposed in the first film, but I think it got lost in trying to tell an overall more arcing story that really is important to the feelings and the vibe of what is being discussed in the original Clive Barker text, because to me, I think it was, and he, he, he might disagree with me, but it seems like a very personal story to Clive Barker and not all the, the demon shit. And that's all like bullshit. That's all hairspray. It's all like added nonsense, but more of the internal struggle between wanting to experience pleasure and the pain of experiencing that pleasure and a lot of that to do with like people have fetishes, people have fetishes that they're not comfortable with. They're not comfortable in experiencing themselves. And when they do finally like let go and experience those, uh, those fetishes, how much pleasure they get out of that and how you can become addicted to some of those, those pleasures and some of those fetishes that you like, you've always felt like, I don't know that that might make me sick. As far as I'm concerned with, few exceptions and unless it involves children or animals i don't give a fuck i don't give a fuck what you want to do try to experience all those things i mean there's some hard sticking points and those are your two big ones consent is the big one as long as you can actually have consent you can't have consent with a child you can't have consent with an animal but once you pass that consent level all things are on the board and why not try to experience these things if you're really interested in it this is a weird fucking diversion. I don't know how to feel about this though. But did you hear about the like the weird German cannibal case? I personally have always felt a little bit of sorrow. I have always felt kind of bad for the guy and what he did conventionally is absolutely horrifying, despicable and everything that we and I don't care about your society. I don't care if you're Italian, I don't care where you're from. Everyone society-wise 
kind of looks down on cannibalizing. It does, everyone is, you know, don't eat other people. That's the big one. We at least don't eat other people. But he had consent, and it doesn't, I mean, I don't know. This is a whole true crime thing we could get into because or were they mentally ill? Was somebody previously established mentally ill beforehand? But long story short, one guy meets a guy on a website called the Cannibal Cafe, wants to eat somebody, finds somebody that wants to be eaten, gives him consent, he 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 eats the guy. He ate him. He he killed him, and he he ate him. He ate him. And they both received like a bizarre style, of, like a bit of pleasure out of it. They both like were consenting into it. That's what I mean. This is like this is the like the line of like weirdness on this stuff because how horrible is this and not horrible is this because they were they were both consenting to what happened. So I don't know how to feel about it personally because, yeah, it's fucked up. It's beyond fucked up. I'm not, I'm not going to be eating anybody anytime soon, but Jesus Christ, like, they were both into it. So can you really charge him with murder if the guy said, please kill me and eat me? This is what I want. It will bring me the most amount of sexual pleasure I ever felt in my life if somebody eats me. So I don't know. Which I'm pretty sure the Germans didn't find him guilty of murder, but they found him insane, and I don't think he is roaming the streets right now. But that Japanese fellow that ate a chick, he's free, does lots of interviews. There's a whole documentary about him, and to be honest, it's quite boring. But there is something onto this whole hook that we, we've, uh, we've gotten caught on, and that's the deviant aspect of things. Because what you were touching upon earlier was the personal nature of Hellraiser uh, with Clive Barker. I have read the Scarlet Gospels, his ending his, I guess, sequel, because he didn't really get the bigger hand he wanted in Hellraiser 2. He was going to direct it, which would have been sufficiently much more interesting, but if you follow the career of Clive Barker on film, he gets fucked every single time. <laughs> every time he goes to do something, it just never fucking comes out right. Most people absolutely love Nightbreed, but I'm here to tell you I'm a Lords of Illusion fan. I love that movie. That's a fucking great movie. Now, if I can only remember my point to get back to. <laughs> 16 paranoia-filled days later. The deviant uh, nature of all of these things, though. I mean, you've got consensual S&M sex acts, fisting, pissing on other people, consenting, doing the dirtier part of sensuality. Because when you're looking at this, like, and how we've been discussing it almost as, like, pleasure, just, like, ejaculatory mindless pleasure that just comes and goes but this is more of a forever type thing and I, I keep focusing on the idea of Elliot Spencer he is established as a really good man an upstanding career military man and he is so shaken up by what happened at the Battle of Flanders that possibly he feels he should be dead with all of his soldiers and at that has destroyed like his nerve endings he can't feel anymore so he has done everything and I think when you're looking at the concepts of, like, the Cenobites, somebody like Jeffrey Epstein, he would be a Cenobite. Somebody like him, and you, you, I hope, hear his name, and you shudder, and you feel hatred, and you feel disgust. He is an abhorrent, horrible, horrible individual. But that crazy level of lust, that just going to all ends of the earth to do the nasty, horrible things he did... He's the type of person, I think. But what you're exposed to with the whole Elliot character is you almost feel bad for him. And in Hellraiser, there's no room to feel bad for them. In the Hellbound Heart, there's no room to feel bad for them. All you know is that they are 
carrying the torch of the unknown. They are the gatekeepers of the beyond, and they are terrifying, and they will tear your soul apart. I wouldn't view someone like Epstein as being a Cenobite-type character. He'd be more of a character who's wanting the Cenobites to take him because he has experienced everything. Jeffrey Epstein is definitely a Frank-style character. Later on in the series, when you've got the two twin security guards that get their heads stuck together and Cenobites don't matter, and it's just throwing in awful people, because that seems to be the kind of the catch going through the movie. It's everyone who is kind of a scumbag, now you're Cenobite. That got weird for me, too, throughout the series, because it just... There was no longer any sort of prompt for becoming a Cenobite. We're just going to turn you into a Cenobite. No, that's not how it works. You have to be a certain type of person. You have to want it. You have to, like, this is, you're, like, selected for it. You're not, for what you've done in, you know, regular life, you are selected to be a Cenobite. You're not just granted it because, I need an army of dudes. No, 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 no. You've done something. You've done things that you're, or you're trying. You want to experience new things, and that's why you've become this this Cenobite character. And then they're almost without any sort of morality, and that that's why I find the characters very interesting because they're like they have no morality whatsoever, and they don't believe in good or bad. It just is. Things just are, and there is no like positive or negative to it it all is just pain and pleasure and that is what's important experiencing those things and once you get past all that and once you get into the the other films it just becomes a lot more about typical like comic book nonsense and it's no longer about the the more deeper inner themes of pain and pleasure and the sadomasochistic angles that Clive Barker was exploring which I'm personally thinking that a lot of these were things in in his life that he was probably more comfortable with when he wrote The Hellbound Heart than he was, say, when he was probably a teenager, of things that he was thinking about, things that not so much the blood and guts, but the, the sadomasochistic angles of it, of like, is it, is it wrong for me to want to experience this pain? And I find this pain pleasurable. And once you do, like, let yourself experience it, what does that turn you into and how much does it release you? Because if you've known any people who are into BDSM or who become dominatrixes or some of those people are the most free people you'll ever meet in your life that have, like, they've come to terms so much with a lot of the pain in their lives through these acts that they, they, take, play, like, they take part in because they are able to let go of everything and let go of their bodies and just let the world happen around them and ex experience things and feel pleasure in that experience. It's a very interesting lifestyle to get involved in just because you're basically allowing yourself to give your will to someone else to do what they wish with you and how freeing that can be. Not everybody can do that, though. I mean, a lot of people would never be able to experience that, but some people... The reason they are such pricks is because they're so terrified of letting people see what's inside of them that really this is who they are. This is like if you lay them all, flay them all out, this is what is deeply at my core. And if you can just let that in all honesty, though, if as a as a species, if humanity could just admit and be honest with themselves about what you are and what you want to experience, you would all be so much happier as opposed to putting all these guilt trips on yourself, these, like, ideas. Is this what you want to do? Then fucking do it. As Again, as long as it doesn't involve certain things, just do it. 
get consent and let yourself be absolutely free. Stop trying to confine yourself to the, you know, all these trappings of this moral bullshit we put all around ourselves that ultimately doesn't matter. It's all just dressing. Because you get a little too deep into stuff, then you find the lament configuration and shit gets a little too intense here because there is, I think, with the Cenobites and the representation of who they are, there's an ultimate loneliness, there's an ultimate lack of humanity, and I think referencing Hellbound when you're exposed to who the Hell Priest actually is, it's a point of losing humanity. That these people, it's not its not a matter of lust, it's not a matter of they want to get hung by chains and spanked or pegged or something sexual. It's a matter of the absolute lack of identity. They've lost everything, and whether it has been through pain or somebody like the Marquis de Sade, who infamously you hear about being... Uh, drank from the skull of babies, the whole newborn porn thing from a Serbian film that comes straight from Marquis de Sade, where he writes about from a fucking hole that Napoleon put him in, having sex with fucking children. I mean, these disgusting points can lead you to this insane example of having everything and having to own and 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 have the most capital of perversion and and feeling all of these experiences but then you have the representation of people that have just lost it like elliot spencer essentially wasn't a bad person he became so detached from not just the idea of humanity but from the essence of whatever a human soul could be through seeing the absolute damage of man witnessing so much violence at the battle of flanders and seeing so many people die for what I mean, World War II, of course, has reasons, but when you break things down, violence against man, violence against humans, killing each other is abhorrent. It's really the worst thing anyone could do. Wouldn't you rather your people to thrive and live and be happy? So I think there's a lot of darkness mixed in with that, too, which you can focus on with Clive Barker's personal life, that there, that could even be like substantial depression. That could be not being able to expose yourself as who you are to you're so detached from your own personality that you are essentially dead, that these Cenobites are the deepest, darkest, sensual representations of the extremes of all angles. And I think Joe Bob Briggs really had a, a, a great point of bringing up something like food. And the Butterball Cenobite that you see in the first, and I think the second film after that, I, I'm spotty with him. I don't think he appears outside of that. He is in the Scarlet Gospels, briefly the novel by clive barker you can eat and eat and eat like a seven the david fincher film that's one of the most effective scenes in the movie is the fact that kevin spacey oh spoiler kevin <laughs> it's fucking seven it's seven i'm fuck off okay it's seven i'm <laughs> kevin spacey forces the guy to eat himself to death and that's fucking that to me was one of the most emotional and terrifying things then you've got the butterball cinnabite who's uh, split down the middle and is just so fat he can't eat anymore. His mouth and eyes are sewn shut. And in the novel, he fingers his his guts and his wounds for just some sort of pain and pleasure mix, being able to just always have uh, control. The extreme angles of things. You know, you, eating's great. It's nourishment. It's sustenance. There's always an extreme. It's nice to have a beer here and now. You drink 38 of them in one sitting. Eh, there's... There's words for that. It's called alcoholism. It's very serious. There's hotlines you can call. Mothers that are against you doing it are driving while you do it. Something like that. Extremities is really the angle that you're focusing on with Hellraiser. Part two, you've kind of got it focusing with Dr. Chenard, and you start with that, and it's a really interesting topic, but like 20 minutes into the movie, he kind of gets what he wants and just becomes an even more megalomaniacal dildo 
And the Dr. Chenard character from that point on, let's looking at all the other Hellraiser movies, is pretty much what Pinhead becomes. Just this douchebag that shows up at the end of the movie, has a few one-liners, and then there's chains. Well, they said that completely lost the thread of it because, to me, the first one is so much about moral neutrality. And because morality is something we fucking made up. It just is. There is no such thing as moral or immoral. It's a set of rules that we've all agreed to of what is right and what is wrong. Well, that takes us back to that cannibal because, I mean, I even said it doesn't matter where you're from. Everyone pretty much has agreed, yeah, cannibalism is wrong. That is something we just kind of agreed on, but there are biological factors into eating other humans. Oh, eating, yeah, yeah, yeah. You shouldn't eat I mean, people. It's not good for you. It might make you go insane. There's also a movie about that. What is it? Uh, we are what we are. And they all end up getting like basically weird Parkinson's disease. And uh, that's what happens when you eat human flesh. God, we're a true crime show now. Maybe we'll get some more likes and followers because I can hashtag true crime. <laughs> but I mean, that's what really Hellraiser is about, though, is <clears throat> getting to the core of it. It is morality because the, the Cenobites have their own some somewhat have their own morality, which is almost no morality. I mean, they're gamblers. You can see that they at least have a sense of jealousy and value. When they realize that Frank has escaped, they get angry right off the bat and they're willing to make a deal for Kirstie's soul. But they say they can't go back to hell alone. It's a matter of opening the box. It doesn't matter what you've done. So, well, I mean, it's kind of, but in part two, though, um, it's it's not hands that call us. It's desire. And that's kind of a very important thing. Of, but that doesn't like, make sense because Kirstie didn't call them for any reason. She wasn't a purveyor of trying to feel the other side. She just fucking found the box trying to figure out but what's they going also, on. But they also, but they give her a chance. If she had wanted to open the box, they would have given her no chance. They wouldn't have, they would have just taken her regardless. Fair. But they do give her some sort of bargaining power. Like I know she has something to bargain with them and that helps a lot. But at, at the end of the day, they do let her bargain. And that's what strikes me as interesting about the Hellraiser series is we've kind of, for, they forgot those rules that they need someone to want them to take them. I mean, they can, if they want to like destroy what what's ever in their path, but really they do have a code that they're going by that, desire is what always calls us i don't care that this like this teenage girl has opened this box there's somebody who wanted her open the box and that is who we're after this is who we want and and it's not and i don't i don't think it's ever been an evil sort of construct of why they want these people it's just what their calling is because i think they are very morally neutral they just want pain and pleasure and that is literally all they want and the first two films because respectively, even with Clive Barker's The Scarlet Gospel, the novel, there it's just vindictive. The hell priest, as he's referred to, instead of Pinhead, there's even a joke about how there's disdain for this entity being called Pinhead. It's just a servant of hell. I That book is an experience to read on your own. I don't want to give too many spoilers away for it. But uh, Satan is involved, references to the other Cenobites. My favorite Clive Barker character, Harry Diamore, is the star of the novel. Pinhead actually is not in it too much. It's mostly a Harry Diamore joint. Again, Lords of Illusion. Fucking, the, one of the, the story is so pointless. It's like a 12, 13-page story about... They go into extreme detail about Harry's paranormal tattoos, and he's a paranormal detective, and then he gets into a fight with a guy on a staircase, and it ends. And then you've got <laughs> Lords of Illusion, which I think is a really bizarre movie, again, a situation where Clive Barker 
just kind of got fucked. It's sort of similar with a lot of its beliefs, I think, of what you get with the the very first Hellraiser. But to me, everything you're discussing is is very pristine and shown, I think, immaculately in that first movie. And I think you're able to even be exposed to a bizarre sensuality. You've got the, the whole angle of Julia and Frank and the flashbacks when he appears for the wedding and they madly fall in love. While making the movie, Clive Barker wanted to use the title The Hellbound Heart. The production company said, no, we got to figure out something else. And a production assistant announced what a woman would do for a good fuck. And I think that's a really interesting angle and a neat exposure for this movie because if you take Julia as a villain over even Frank, everything she does truly is out of what she believes to be love. So she's even somewhat fitting. She's also the most repressed character in the entire series, too, because she's repressed all these feelings. And then when she goes back to the homestead, and remembers Frank and like lets them releases those memories and releases that um that serotonin basically she is all in again I will murder whoever the fuck I need to murder to have what was probably the most animalistic sexual experience in my life that really opened me up I don't think it was a matter of love and devotion I think what you're looking at really here is I've used the term a, a few times here like a, a purveying perversion that the emotions the excitement the sensuality everything that had been so repressed inside of her that she'd never felt before and that was exposed was like doing heroin that she fuck fuck it it's on like donkey kong now i'll kill for you we were texting before the show and i was kind of joking how many people does she kill she's got a body count of like 10 not one you know this is the ideal town to go commit crimes in. the police department's not going to look for you whatsoever but it's the whole act, and I think there's a lot to it of she brings these people upstairs for Frank. And at first, you don't really get to see the visceral nature of what he does to consume them. But when you're finally shown what it is Frank has to do to get them, I think that's almost one of the greasiest things of the movie. Because he's got to sensually slip his fingers inside of their flesh to drain their life force. And it's just this very, very... Like Geiger's use of of the vagina for the the face hugger is just this very in your face sexual innuendo that you can't really ignore. And weirdly, I think it's missed a lot of how Frank has to drain people. And then you've got the ultimate death of Julia, where Kirstie runs up the stairs and she's accidentally stabbed. He immediately he had penetrated. No use. Yeah, she's penetrated. penetrated. The old Dario Argento. I love to stab killing women. It's just so good. That's probably a, a racist interpretation of Italians, and I apologize. That's getting cut. Yeah, I apologize. Probably will cut <laughs> that. Um, but it was not cut from the show. Like Dario Argento's love of just stabbing women, you've got Frank penetrating her, but then he immediately sucks her dry, which, too, could be a sentiment from Clive Barker of, of men in general. I think Frank is uh, one of the ultimate male bad guy characters because really all he does is suck from everyone and that's been his entire life his draining people his brother andrew robinson we haven't even named who plays larry the fucking scorpio killer the great andrew robinson i think one of the greatest successes of this movie is him convincing clive barker to allow him to ablib at the very end of the film one of the greatest lines the best in the whole series jesus wept Big emphasis on that dirty P, wept. 
ripped. I love it. It's just great. He was supposed to say fuck off. How anticlimactic. Fuck off. How American. That's that's appealing to the the dumb American audience with fuck off. To me, the most interesting character is Julia. And I know that she was going to be the ultimate villain after part two that we're going to they're going to try to continue her character on because I think she's she's very interesting because if you look at like her, her turn of she's this bored housewife who cheated on her husband and had the greatest sexual experience of her life goes to Frank has a possibility of having Frank back go so far as to murder somebody and it affects her, makes her throw up the first time she murders somebody. But the closer she gets to having Frank back, she's into it and then starts to sexually get off on the murders that she's committing to get back to this one amazing experience she had in her life. This thing that, like transcended time and space for her. But you get a humanity with the character because there's a scene where Frank is upstairs, very pensive. He's he's has no fucking flesh at all. He's just muscle. And Larry hears something and is going to go investigate. And Julia and Larry, she, she wants to stop the situation. She doesn't want anything bad to happen to them. And they start to get romantic. And Frank walks into the room behind them. And she's screaming, no, no, no. And it freaks Larry out. He doesn't know why he's being rejected. He doesn't know what he's done. And in that instance, you've got Julia actually caring. That there is humanity to her. She hasn't lost all hope because there is but a part of But then what happens? It just goes right out the door. <laughs> Go ahead and take Larry's skin. Fuck it. You could even look at Hellraiser as an instant of being caught in a really abusive relationship because that's all Frank does. He gaslights, he lies, and he manipulates to get his way. He actually doesn't care about Julia. Which, yeah, I mean, like he, fu- he stabs her, then he drains her. It gets, it's, it's a double. I mean, he is just, I think, the typical idea of a man. And I don't know if we have room or a place to bring up Clive Barker's sexuality, but I think in this instance, there is a lot of personal reflect on his relationships and his views of men that he, he would know a lot more intimate ideas of how awful men are. And I think a lot of white cis males don't look at it that way. They hear about their friend being an abuser. or They hear about somebody being really awful or being a gaslighter. Yeah, but I hang out with him and he doesn't do anything to me. I hang out with him and it's fine. I've seen him with his girlfriend. They argue a little bit. Most white cis guys, most cis guys, we don't even have to say white, are really easy to let things slide because it's my buddy. I get drunk with them all the time. Everything's fine. But when you have a more intimate perspective with men, you possibly are able to see, oh, God, holy shit, now I get the whole feminist thing. We're awful. We're, we're absolutely awful. And Hellraiser... And through most of the series is a lot of focus on really shitty, awful men and the behavior of really shitty, awful men from Frank to Dr. Chenard. You've got Hellseeker with Dean Winters. He was plotting to kill his wife, complete and absolute douchebag. It's a history of bad men throughout the Hellraiser series and hedonism, obviously. But I think, well, I mean, with Julia, though, you do have you do have some particularly evil women as well who are throughout the series and probably the most evil person in the series, which is Julia, because after she gets rid of her inhibitions and even begins to murder, she learns to get off on it. She learned from Frank. I mean, she's being exposed to what he's exposed to and is now traversing into his territory and hellbound. She, she is Frank. She has come back and is not going to go back to hell. Her whole motivation is exactly what we were exposed to previously. But she does, when she gets into hell, no longer gives a shit about Frank. 
she hands Frank over and just like, fuck you. I'm like, I've passed beyond you. And now I'm the evil queen. Take your best shot, Snow White. But that's almost the exact same thing she does in the very first movie, that she is unhappy. I mean, her marriage isn't going well, but she seems to have affection and, and love for Larry. She seems to love her husband. She has problems with Kirsty, but she seems also to care about her. It's not like she's the the most wicked, evil stepmother portrayal that you could have. There's a little bit of humanity to the character, and she slowly is lured in by Frank and becomes more and more like him and more hedonistic and more exposed to, now that I've done this, I don't care about you. So she pushes Andrew Robinson, Larry aside. She's willing to get rid of that. Once she sees how glorious things are in hell, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven always, she, fuck it, I don't need it because she's now exposed to a whole new level of pleasure. That's the whole domino effect. But I think that's, a lot effect. of that is crossing the line and her crossing that line and realizing that, oh, it is just this easy. And I think that's a lot of, even in the real world, where a lot of that problem, like a lot of problems stem from in humanity, is once people cross a certain line and see how easy it is to cross that line and when they don't get punished or they don't... One of the, the reasons, because <clears throat> you hear people all the time, I just wish somebody would break into my house and then I can get my gun out and I shoot them. It's just like, do you really want to cross that line? Because... Well, the question is, why do you want to physically harm anyone? Why do you have any sort of excitement? They want to know what it feels like. They want to know what it feels like to have the power. But where is that life. fantasy derived from? At what point in time of your life were you denied so much respect or you didn't allow yourself to have anything else that you just questioned? I mean, that's some I real... I don't think it gets into that far. I think it's literally a um, just a visceral ex- something they want to experience. They want to know what it feels like to kill somebody. And once they cross that line and see that it feels like nothing. Like it doesn't change anything like, Oh, this does. Mm, I'm not changed at all. I like, okay, this is going to get incredibly personal and kind of dark on my end, but oddly you have a child and a lot of people say, well, once I had a had, once I had my baby, everything changed. And I just, I knew what life was all about. There's also the experience of having a child and looking at it and just going, I don't feel any difference. <laughs> like I have, like I have a baby and it's, I, I don't feel like I, I, my desires haven't changed. My wants haven't changed. It hasn't like mellowed me out any. It's just like, I have something else. I have this to take care of, but it doesn't make me just like, Oh, it's just changed everything in my perspective of the world. It, it just, it, it hasn't. It's just another thing. It's another thing to add to the, the the cart of responsibilities. It's not like changed who I am as a person, maybe for other people, but not for me personally. It's just like, okay, not that there's no love or anything like that. It's not that at all. It's just, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's an odd experience to have. It's just like, all right, here's another thing to take care of. So would you open the box if this configuration came your way? would you ultimately become one of these space cowboys? I mean, because you have two options. You either become one of them or, I guess, an eternal slave to hell? At this point, no. At this point, I like I haven't crossed that threshold yet. But to say that I would never cross that threshold, I think, is being disingenuous. I think it's being, like, I think at a certain point in your life, you can get to, like, a place where you're just like, fuck it. I I don't feel anything. I haven't felt anything 
desperate and so long, emotionally, physically, spiritually. I need to feel something. I need to feel that pain. That's why, I mean, think about even cutters. Why do people cut their own flesh? Trigger because warning. The, well, yes, trigger warning. But, I mean, it's the emotions are so intense that they need to express them physically. I'm not trying to, to like to it to do something. and crack, but, I mean, really, people ask, you know, you hear this all the time. You You watch... Hardcore documentaries and family members will ask, why do you do crack? I feel something. And not just crack. Why do you drink all the time? Why do you do anything? It makes you feel something. Why do people like to jog? You hit an endorphin level at some point in time and you get high off of it. Why do people do anything? I mean, personally, I, I don't want to be disingenuine, but to quote the Big Lebowski, I still jerk off manually. I would have zero interest in something like the concepts of this forever melding of pleasure and pain. I'm still good just, like, smoking pot. I guess I'm a man of incredibly simple pleasures, but I don't I don't feel there's any more room in my life getting personal for pain. I'm kind of done with it, and if that forces me to ultimately become detached and in the late term of my life, somebody like Elliot Spencer, well, then maybe the box will appear. So like you, I mean, we're kind of at the same point. Right now, I I'm all right. I don't even I can't, go to I can't give a definite answer to that question though. Like I really can't because I like I've hit points in my life where I I would possibly even say yes that the burdens of life have gotten to me so much. Why the fuck not? Why not try to feel this? Why try not to feel something? I mean, putting yourself into the line of fire over and over again just to feel something is a very powerful emotion. I've, I mean, I've done that several times in my life, not including weird sadomasochistic shit, but just in general, like relationships, like why do you continue a relationship like this? Because it makes me feel anything at all. And when you don't feel anything on a regular basis, and this makes you feel something, even if that feeling is bad, that is why you continue it. So I can have some sort of feeling because other than that, I'm empty. So you would probably end up becoming some sort of high-ranking king of hell because, I mean, <laughs> you're like, like you're the Julia. I mean, that's in what the whole character was supposed to end up becoming throughout the series was they were going to focus on her over the idea of Pinhead. You brought that up earlier. I, I, I think the whole aspect of Frank is, is much more personification of evil because... He got bored. It wasn't something like I keep babbling about fucking Pinhead and who he is in the second movie. Somebody that became detached and broken and bored with... See, I just used the word bored twice and I have to try and explain it. Somebody who became detached and broken and disassociated with society and what life was because of so much pain. Frank literally just... I fucked all the things I can fuck. I've snorted all the stuff and shot all the stuff I can shoot and snort. What's next? He was a absolute evil and dr chenard is a great representation of that too because he's somebody that is not even so much into the pleasure and pain aspect he is somebody that is craving power he is somebody that ultimately has felt nothing but the pleasure and pain from having power from being able to be almost like a dictator style character and so when he enters hell and his Cenobite form is finally created. It, it's just this evil, vindictive doctor because he's one of those people. You know, you read about like West Virginia in the 1950s, thousands, almost millions of lobotomies committed by like the same guy. He's that type of awful person that could just do that. That Joseph Mengla, very evil personification. Then part three, it's a dickhead that has a disco. 
He's he's a misogynist that treats women like shit, and he's got a disco. And now he bought some art, and Pinhead is in the fucking, I don't know. (laughs) The series quickly becomes, and I think you very, very aptly and accurately described it, comic booky. And it goes, like, part three and part four, if you look at it in those angles, comic booky's great. But the rest of them are just like really, really boring detective pulp novels. And then inconsequentially, Pinhead shows up and you've been dead the whole time. Yeah, uh, it's, I think, a series that sadly lost its way once Clive Barker like just had no interest in it anymore and no interest in being involved in it. And I think people who took it over just never understood the pure concepts of what Hellraiser is about. Well, no one could but Clive Barker, and I I think you really touched upon something on this episode that is is really unique in that idea of you can angle everything in Hellraiser and the Hellbound Heart to be very clearly, evidently, part of his life. And even from things that he has said that, you know, the whole Cenobite and the idea of them came from uh, the Electric Hellfire Club and going to S&M clubs in New York City and the Meatpacking District in the late, or the late 70s, early 80s. And, and I think a good portion of that is just finally figuring out who and what you are and how freeing that is. That, yes, this may not be physically good for me at times, but I don't care because it's good for me in other ways. Or I'm willing to go this far. I'm willing to take myself to this level of experience and admitting to that and admitting that to yourself and getting out of denial is one of the most freeing things you can possibly have and really changes you as a person. It, it opens you up to everything because you're no longer so repressed and what your problems are. If you, I mean, if you get into even something like, as you were talking about earlier about Jeffrey Epstein, all that shit, if these motherfuckers didn't have to put on a goddamn mask every day and just like admitted who and what they are maybe they wouldn't take it to such weird crazy extreme levels maybe if you just admit that i'm kind of into this thing or this thing you wouldn't have to end up going to a weird fucking island because you've experienced everything and you've hidden it for so long that well now i want to cross the weird pedophile border but what happens when you've done everything i mean like when charlie sheen had his breakdown years and years and years ago people were baffled why it was why is he cracked out he could have everything He's had everything. He's done heroin. He has he's snorted the crushed up adrenaline glands of an elephant. Charlie Sheen has done absolutely everything. And he too has been one of those mini celebrities of cues, accused of eating children. Why crack? Why not? When you have all the money in the world and you're being paid $100 million for a half an hour's worth of work once a fucking week, what else do you have to do but just stay up and party all the time? That's where I think the Frank character comes from. Somebody like Charlie Sheen is, rem- at the time, reminiscent Tiger Blood, Charlie Sheen and Frank. These two have a lot in common because all he was cared- all Charlie cared about was sensory. And that's something that I think is a really important idea with the very first two movies is, like, Dr. Chenard is obsessed with power. And it's the need for power. It's the absolute need for control. He's not so much in this for a sexual or pain. You know, it's not a matter of feeling everything else he has gotten to a point that all he needs is power as to where frank was just bored and as i've joked before in the third movie it's just kind of a misogynist dildo you don't have any 
evil anymore. Once you strip the evil of man, once you strip the identity of how evil the human race actually actually is out of the Hellraiser series, you're just left with comic books. Well, you're just left with a lot of iconography and don't that look cool? Let's sell some t-shirts. And I think that's kind of the shame of the series is just, yes, it is iconic, but it's so much about deeper ideology and themes that you've stopped exploring because you just wanted an action figure. And I think that's the least important thing about it. It's about human experience and, you know, just so much of it's about being honest with yourself, who of what you are and just letting that out be okay with who you are. Well, the Stone Cold Facts, too, is that Dimension just didn't want to lose the property rights. So the dead horse of Hellraiser that has been beaten over and over again. Many of the movies that we have shit on uh, probably would have been great movies. And if you can separate the Hellraiser aspect from some of them, I like that Romanian one. And that's mostly what I'm speaking of here. Cool concept, and it even almost delves into the idea of the first movie. And I think where Clive Barker's subject matter came from you know people this cult of people obsessed with death and pinhead has been contacting this person somehow and and she eventually finds her way to romania and then it becomes this like law and order episode and i think it drags out and it loses any of the vibe in the criminal justice system the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders these are their stories But that's, I mean, really, you get like halfway through the movie and you're expecting Christopher Maloney to show up. And it's like, oh, shit. No, I think I'm more like, can we have Ice T show up in a Hellraiser film? Yo, Pinhead. I don't like this talk you've been going with. People don't enjoy sex. They're numb. They're gripped by some force they can't control. It's like somebody who drinks too much, snorts cocaine. That's the house on the ponies. And those addictions are considered disorders. Buster Rhymes got to fight Michael Myers. I mean, come on. Can we get something going on with Ice-T? He needs to be in a lot more horror productions. I think really what happened here is Pinhead became very successful, and that's what people took from the story. That's, I mean, in, in The Hellbound Heart, he's not even the lead Cenobite. That never actually shows up on film, who runs this awful gang that these, the Order of the Gash. A lot of mumbo-jumbo. A lot of it is stuff that people took from Clive Barker's wording and decided to, let's focus upon this. Now they're hell priests, and now they have personalities. And the terrifying... What was terrifying is not knowing where they came from and who they are. It's just that they were gatekeepers to this level of pain and pleasure. That was scary. Experience. And I think it's also a crime that post a certain point, everybody got like less interested in designing Cenobites to be interesting. Like part three, they're, uh, they're fucking terrible. They just keep bringing the chatterer back. Like, Hey, he's a dog. Now. Yeah. He has and eyes. They bring now. Chatterer back. They bring like weird dogs and like they have the the with the, the wire twins and the um the direct to video ones and they just like let's do some interesting like what is it in deader there's a cenobite that you barely see but it has any screen time it's literally just a head with a giant spike through it and it's just like what is this like design something interesting design something where like you're showing the pleasure and the pain mixed together as opposed to just trying to make something that looks like Oh, that looks cool. Like the the closest thing to like interesting Cenobite 
characters were the uh, was the Twisted Souls action figures from McFarlane Toys. Those were sweet. Like, those were pretty interesting, but they you know you didn't take them anywhere after that. Well, in the first two movies, the representation of the Cenobites are terrifying because as it's emphasized in the very first Hellraiser film from 87, demons to some, angels to others, you have a spectrum of where you can view them as and where you're at in life or where the victims and the people in the movie are at in life. Frank probably saw them as angels at first until captured and sent to hell where, very similar to Chenard, power, it wasn't even so much power. He just wanted to be able to free roam and continue being his way. He can, uh, Hedonism was his style. Hell wasn't enough for him. That's why I think he's such an intriguing and evil character. Hell actually wasn't enough for Frank. He needed more, and that's more, that's more terrifying than what the Cenobites are and what they represent because they truly are a standing force. It's like you said, they have their own rules and they clearly have a style, but what they don't have is judgment. They're probably the most judgment-free things of all time, even more so than the Christian God and, and the devil. They have no views of you. They have a job and they fulfill it. It either is or is not. And that's what I think is incredibly liberating about like the idea and the concept of the Cenobites is just, you are what you are. And that is it. Stop fucking putting on a mask just be what you are if you're a nazi that's fine be a nazi doesn't mean i don't hate your fucking guts because you're a nazi but i don't understand the the purpose of pretending to be something else and all this other shit other than well i need people to like me so i can do it but just fuck it just be a piece of shit if you're a piece of shit just be that piece of shit and be happy with it now don't expect me not to punch you in the face after you're a piece of shit but still you're a nazi fuck it I think that might be shining a little bit of a light on the idea of how awful the Cenobites are, though, because they do seek pleasure in some of the things they do. In the first movie, Pinhead, the Hell Priest, says to Kirsty before she makes her deal, No tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. So he wants to see this. This is their only reward on the job. So, like, god damn it, going back into that stupid Elliot Spencer thing that you get in the second movie, somebody that's so detached, the human side of him, I mean, this is the whole thing in part three, is what kept the, the non-judgmental idea. Somebody that was so detached that they became this entity of pain and suffering. And the human aspect is is destroyed and killed in Hellbound Hellraiser 2. The, the third movie... Pinhead becomes this entity of his own of the the complete immoral evil aspect of things. So what you're saying is humanity is the evil thing. I mean, because it's just some chaotic yes. James Bond villain. What made it interesting, what made it terrifying was the human aspect. Again, going back to Frank, that's what's scary. Nothing was enough for him. Julia is a very complex character that we never got to pay enough attention toward, and it should have been her focused series because... Her quest in part two, I think that true arc of her getting to hell and realizing, fuck, I don't need no man. I just broke the glass ceiling. I could run this shit. It's just a diamond in the sky. Okay. And she's trying to, like, literally make the best of a worse situation because she's gotten completely used. And Well, she's freed herself completely of all the constraints yes. of, especially, like, all the... Because I'm sure a lot of her upbringing was about being a proper lady and all that shit and she just and I fuck all that shit this is what I am this is who I am all that people who try to keep me down by you know trying to refer to me as a whore for trying to get what I want like doing what I wanted people who um, try to subjugate me to 
their moral code and all fuck that this is who i am and she's free because of it doesn't make her not evil but she is at least free she's no longer in denial about her true nature and that's really what the the biggest problem with humanity is is i would say and you people can disagree with me or not that about 98% of the world is in about what have say like 50 to 60% of denial all day, every day, about who they are, what they are, what they want. Where I think the where numbers are probably bigger than that. I mean, it's just, that's what it is. People, like, they lie to themselves on a daily basis. I don't know why they lie to themselves. It'll just, like, let go. Let go of all these goddamn lies that <clears throat> make you try to feel better about yourself. Like, I mean, one of the things I've always said is, I've never understand guilt. I still don't understand guilt. It's stupid to me. There is something you can do. You can mentally work this out before you do it. I want to do this. I want to do A, but the ramifications of doing A will be B. <clears throat> so, can I get can I do A without having B happen? No. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. Okay, now I feel guilty about it. You knew you were going to feel guilty about it. You knew what the, the ramifications of what you were about to do are. You knew what was going to happen, but you did it anyway. So why do you feel guilty about it? You did what you wanted to do. Well, look at Kirstie and Julia, though. I mean, when Kirstie makes this deal with the Cenobites, she decides she's going to turn over what she thinks is going on. And when they get upstairs, the dead body she knows is her father. She won't even turn the corpse over to him. She has so much respect in who he was as an individual and person, she couldn't even turn against that. As to where Julia, uh, the, the, her, she didn't even care about life. She cared about the sensual pleasures so much and that Frank got his skin back, they fucked immediately. Killed ten people. Killed, she killed like half of them with a fucking hammer. Frank killed a few of them, so her body count can't be like ten or eleven. But she killed guys with a hammer. And then Literally. she got out of the dial about it and said, fuck it, kill Larry too, I don't care. But just to get fucked. I mean, figuratively and literally, because she gets fucked, and then she gets fucked, and then she goes to hell and gets fucked again. Poor woman, she breaks the glass ceiling and can't even get higher. I feel weirdly, out of everyone's sympathy for Julia, because even what you've just, the picture you've painted, we don't know her backstory, but what we can see... And funnily enough, Hellraiser is the most British movie that's supposed to take place in like upstate New York. And well, if you watch the, uh, I think I don't know if the the Blu-rays and DVDs at this point have finally sucked out all that stupid American dubbing and just just gone to the full-on British versions yet. But I mean, everybody is British. <laughs> yeah, the the very original experience when you came into Hellraisers, everyone had dubbing. There's a whole scene of dialogue where Kirstie and her father at dinner at a Chinese restaurant and he makes a notion of, you know, well things were better back in I think it's Brooklyn, maybe the Bronx. They de oh, it would be Brooklyn. They they where they weren't living in the Bronx. No offense to the fine people living in the Bronx, but the family <laughs> in Hellraiser was probably not living there. Uh, somebody has a Yankees hat on at some point. I know the movie intentionally was going to be British, as Clive Barker is, and, uh, you know, to release it to an American audience. Uh, two, I think that original line of fuck off, that's for the American audience. We've got to be a little catchy. we got to be dirty. we got to say the F word. The Americans are going to like it. <laughs> well, I mean, as you're bringing up Julia and how she progressed throughout the film, so if you notice in part two, 
she has the biggest smile on her face for the entire time because she is finally free. She is to her utmost potential of who and what she is. And it's incredibly liberating for her. This is, I mean, it doesn't make her less of an evil entity because that's who she is. She's evil, but she embraces her side, her evil side. Now she's let it all out and it's incredibly freeing for her. Well, so it's the she's only option like she finally has. happy. I mean, she's looked and, and speculated and seen what's gone on while she's been suffering in hell and realized this is the only option. So she is going for the only thing she can do. Unlike somebody, Frank escaped. Frank couldn't deal, and maybe this is another angle to him, he couldn't deal with the ultimate pleasures. He had to get out. I mean, it, it's still, he really reminds me, I think I misspoke earlier, Frank really is Jeffrey Epstein. I think that is a really great personification of somebody that is just in real life, in the world we live in, evil. I don't know any other way that you could discuss that man outside of saying he is evil. The things he did, it's not like accused of. No, the things he actually did are evil. And we were discussing things like cannibalism and how morals and standards are kind of this idea we believe in. If you're a Christian, you have ten rules that are in this book that you take as absolutely everything. Some of these things that are uh, spoken standards and, and mostly laws all over the world are for good reason. Something you were discussing earlier with experience and moving forward with life, consent. Just like you can watch that show My Strange Addiction and there are car fuckers, are people that like have weird anime dolls and they're in long-term relationships with them. The people that buy forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 sex dolls that have personalities, kind of like... Uh, the character in Blade Runner, the sequel, where you have become in love with this inanimate object. These things, especially in our time, they, they get mixed up with actually really serious issues of, well, what's wrong if I like kids? There's a fucking, okay, the fact that this discussion even has to be had with something as vindictive and evil as, like, Jeffrey Epstein just using him, that's the motivation truly behind the untapped essence of what is behind the void of what these Cenobites open or what happens when you open that box when you figure out the configuration and I think it's something to notice that it's always solved differently that it's something about your level or maybe the measurement of pain and disgust in you and especially in the first movie the Cenobites are mad and they are very very mad that Frank has gotten out to me, that's an emphasis that he is a disgusting, immoral person that they even want back in hell. That Frank is so awful, they have to get him back. That's who he is. That's Jeffrey Epstein. As we were talking about consent, I think as, we, you know, the whole line from part two of not hands that bring us desire, the Cenobites are ultimately about consent. You consented to, to this experience. Now, I mean, now you have to, like, come with us, and this is what they did, like, as far as the first few films, they weren't about, like, just ubiquitous murder to everything and everyone. It was, you consented. You were part of this. Now, they weren't into non-consent, and I find that very interesting. The Scarlet Gospels, unfortunately, fucks all of that up because the book begins with the Hell Priest, who essentially is Pinhead hunting down magicians. It's very similar to Lords of Illusion to gain their power and their grimoires to... I but don't... That's, yeah. That's what I, I mean. It's Clive much. Barker. I don't late. think anything that Clive Barker has written in the past, like, 15 to 20 years should really reflect on his earlier work because I... 
Like, I think what the Scarlet Gospels is ultimately about for Clive is destroying the character of Pinhead to him. Like, you have a valuable point with that because definitely that was his whole driving point. This is the end of it. And I guess it's a spoiler. It truly is. There's an end to what Pinhead is. But I think it, it deviates so much from the idea that it's almost a fan service that there has outside of the films that we are discussing and the, the whole aspect of, and I said this at the beginning of the show and I don't think I ever really finished what I was saying, the two sides of this. You've got Clive Barker's Hellraiser, then you've got the Dimension films and the film aspect of it. There really is a third part to it because God, there's 30 years at this point of comic books, the Scarlet Gospels, I guess ignores the everything that was written and published in the comics. It's got its own ending. I like it, but it's it's like, well, what is the real version of Alien? Is it the director's cut? Is it the version where you see them morphing them into eggs? I don't, it doesn't matter. I mean, you as a fan should be able to take whatever mythos you want or whatever you want to make as canon. If you like the first movie or the second movie or the seventh movie or the fourth movie or the ninth movie, Whatever you want to do, people do it with Halloween. It's what you get pleasure and enjoyment out of, which, again, is what the whole point of this series is, is seeking ultimately fucking pleasure. And that's just neglected. The third movie, you almost have... The third movie has a touch of hedonism. You've got that really shitty, misogynistic disco owner, and you have the sex, you've got the grease, you've got the feeling, but it just it becomes a free-for-all. It becomes a Motorhead video, really. Yeah, I mean, it's, they lost the thread at that point, and it became about something else completely. And it became about commercialization and merchandising. And I just, like, to me, the first two films are canon, and the rest of it is a bunch of mostly nonsense. Not that I don't enjoy aspects of each film or whatever, but, it, like, the core idea of what the Hellbound Heart is about was in mostly the first film, a little bit in the second film. Um, I think the second film even strays off in itself, but... I think the the core ideas of pain and pleasure is what it's about. And that's what has always depressed me about the series is they've taken that sadomasochistic idea out of it and it's become about something else. It's become about fucking demonic shit and demons and all this. It's, no, no, no. This is about your own personal fucking shit. This is about you. It's not about like outside influences. This is about what's toiling inside of yourself, not all this other shit. It vacantly is rubbed into your face, but you know what? After Hellraiser 4, the series really becomes horrifying episodes of Columbo. I was going to kill my wife, and this is how Pinhead found it out and told me I was dead the whole time. Oh, uh, one other thing. It's just really boring detective stories. You well, don't... All, they were all scripts that they bought that were other horror films that they rewrote, like, about... 15% of just to throw Pinhead in at the end. That's really, I mean, truthfully what it was. All those scripts were different films and they had nothing to do with Hellraiser or anything else. They just like retroactively like, okay, we need another Hellraiser movie. Well, we, we got this script. Okay, let's take this. Boom, boom, boom. Changed it. Done. Now it's got Pinhead. It's like, well, fuck, that's nothing. It was never a need for another Hellraiser movie. It was never looking yeah, it was at fans. Securing rights. And yeah. Always about securing rights. And you've got that Walmart version. 
what's that one called? Is that Revelations, where it's not Doug Bradley? Yeah. yeah you've got two yeah. films that Doug Bradley doesn't appear in, but you've got one that's so rushed, it's just like a weird fever dream. I watched that movie, and by the time it ended, I thought it was a YouTube trailer. I had no idea that it was a full, actual, finished thing, and that's baffling. That's actually a part of the series, though. That's... If you, I will I mean, say, like, Revelations is, is, like, it's dog shit, it's terrible, but... I mean, there a lot is of that an is idea just, to it, because they go out to Mexico to just fuck and be hedonists and do the yeah, worst things possible. Say, though. It does return to some of the core themes, though, and that I will appreciate some of those, but it's handled completely wrong, um, it's cheap, the acting is bad, there's a lot of things, but at least they had, like, some core ideas that went back to Hellraiser. And the same thing with... A Hellraiser Judgment, which came out a couple years ago, that I think the guy who played Pinhead did like an adequate job, at least in that one, and it returned to a lot of core, like perversive ideas, like um, when the people are like getting their souls collected. What the fuck is going on in that movie? That's some interesting Hellraiser mythology stuff, but all the uh, the cop plot. And the serial killer, that's all garbage. I don't give a fuck about any of that stuff. But all the pinhead stuff is like, okay, this is kind of Hellraiser-y. At least he's in like produ- like a good chunk of the movie. I thought the only thing that was even reflective of some of the filth that Clive Barker represents was the auditor who would eat everyone's yeah. sins and then throw them back up. And like in the very first book, you've got this character that never is represented somewhere else, and they somewhat show up in the film. The engineer. You've got this like weird, awful monster that I guess I mean you get the idea in the Hellbound Heart that the engineer creates them, that it is a servant of whatever lord or whatever order they're in, because it's something that's brought up a lot as the Order of the Gash, there's Cenobites. You've got names, you've got terminology, so you get an idea that there's like some sort of construction or formality to who they are and that there's rules and that they have to obey these rules the second movie you still have the representation of the engineer that seems to be like not so much an overlord but somebody who has higher decisions because the engineer is responsible for creating the monstrous dr chenard after that it's just a free-for-all everyone becomes a cenobite nothing really matters and there's no integrity to it. The whole idea is, I think, a big emphasis on sin, and I think there's a lot of Catholicism, but at the same time, like, Tibetan mysticism and Buddhism, because you have this idea of the transcendence through pain. Pain also is pleasure. Pleasure is pain. Everything intermingles. Time is a flat circle. All of these things have a sensical making when you have experienced everything. And that itself can be even translated to something like the state of nirvana of reading the uh, reaching the ultimate point of everything because once you find a peace in yourself wouldn't that be the ultimate pleasure and pain once you reach the plateau of knowing who you are isn't there a strange fear i think that would be existent that would almost be an idea of pain of being so comfortably with yourself knowing nobody is going to ever understand that that's something like the Cenobites and what their order stands for. Possibly. I mean, that's this humble yeah, critic's perspective. Once you get to that point where you know who you are, what you are, the problem is there's no more, there's no other places to go. You've like, you've ascended to this, this certain level and now everything around you is like empty because you like, like there's nothing to like fulfill. There's no like puzzle to solve anymore because you've solved the puzzle. Well, that's how you which, become a cinema. Which I guess this could be an overtone of the overall story of what the puzzle box represents. That you are the puzzle box. That that's literally what it is. You are the puzzle, and once you solve the puzzle, it's like oh, 
Turns out I like getting torn apart by hooks. I solved the puzzle. Turns out I enjoy this kind of shit. I think that might be a whole new door that we've gone into here because there are people that go into this and solve the box that don't know what they're doing, and then there are those that understand it, and maybe those are the people that become the Cenobites. Those are people that become the Guardians. And in the first movie, I think the the lack of religion, the lack of heaven, hell, the lack of any imagery that you could invoke to think that there are demons... I think really what's perfect is demons to some, angels to others. That I mean, God, read the Bible. The whole perspective and what angels looked like were like a hundred-eyed monsters that would appear with six or seven faces, just very horrific, scary beings. And what you're represented with the Cenobites could be taken the same way. Some people could find it devastatingly beautiful as to where other people find it horrible. It just is where you're at and what point of the rope you've climbed to. We've talked a lot on the show of levels and plateau and things like David Cronenberg where he discusses and talks about keeping your antenna up. All of this could be translated the exact same way. How high is your antenna and what are you trying to pick up? Are you done of this existence? I mean, you can even bring up people like Aleister Crowley and the whole idea of Thelema. There is a lot of esoteric beauty to this, and you can look at it on this dark, mystical angle, but two, it's really... It's a little bit more like Buddhist than anything else. Rebirth, death, rebirth. And, of course, if you feed into the comic books, the idea of Pinhead is this deity, this Aztec god, Zyptotec, who is the birth of war, death. He was prayed to in the spring, and he had this whole body of flayed, dying flesh and would be reborn every year because, as with pain, torture, suffering, there is always a wave of change. And that's really the... uh, idea of life is continuously gaining new levels and changing an experience when you're burned out you get the configuration you opened the box we came yep i mean that's that pretty much sums it up is just you are ready for this experience we're here now let's do this let's take you to the the outer reaches of experience and see at what point you get like torn apart well, I think they expect it, and that's something that's almost kind of comical in the very first movie is that he keeps telling Kirsty like, no room for argument, shut up, you open the box, there's rules to this, almost as if they, you know, have gotten a memo from their boss. When people open the box, you go tear their souls apart, that's the whole thing. Say the line, be really scary, you know, finger your own guts, do something like that. That to them it's a job, that they're just defending some sort of stance, you did this. And like the engineer, there's just so many levels of who is who's deciding. I think really what the Cenobites stand for are gatekeepers and guardians. And later on in the series, they became the focal point as to where they were almost boring. They were very visually attractive and horrifying. And of course, as you've said, they became t-shirts, figurines, $300 action figures that you can buy. But what was terrifying is what's beyond that, that we never know. And that's what's scary about Frank. That's what's scary about Shenard. We don't know what that afterlife, what not even afterlife, that beyond they experienced actually was. Well, I mean, was. really, like, I think you hit the nail on the head is, like, they are gatekeepers, but what they are the gatekeepers of are the innermost, like, experiences of ourselves, like, of what, who we are and what we want, like, our deep fucking emotional and mental makeup. Once we can get through that, once we can like rip apart all of our fucking bullshit that's been put on upon us by society and all these concepts to what makes a 
moral person, a non-moral person, all this stuff, once we can tear that away and get past the gatekeepers, we can see the the like the flesh, the exposed tenuous flesh that we are. And once you can get to that point, you're actually free in some certain way, shape, or form. And depending on who you are, your suffering may be legendary even in hell. I think that'll do it for this episode. You opened the box, we came. The ashtray is full, the bottle is empty. We'll be back next week. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. On the next episode... Stubble-faced detective Hank Sonny Crockett lives in a sailboat guarded by his alligator, Elvis. Hank's partner, Alexander Rico Nash, is a former New York cop looking for his brother's killer. Together, they are detectives in the Miami-Dade Police Department's Organized Crime Bureau, the Vice Unit. Always undercover and always packing heat, they take on the Florida drug world one scumbag at a time. Find out what happens on the next episode of Death by DVD Vice. and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. That by DVD has concluded another day of broadcasting. That by DVD is broadcast from on top of the Blue Crystal Sunshine Mountain with transmitters on top of the Empire State Building transmitting with one billion watts of audio power as authorized by the Federal Commission of Broadcasting in offices at 123 Easy Street. At this time, we conclude our broadcasting. Just one more thing, please. I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement.